Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to this very special edition of the Empire Podcast dedicated to arguably the greatest filmmaking duo in the history of British cinema. No, it's not Ant and Deck, they only made one film. Masterpiece though it is, Alien Autopsy doesn't qualify them for special podcast status. I'm talking instead about Powell and Pressburger, oh yes indeed, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, whose work is being celebrated right now as we speak in a colossal and amazing BFI retrospective that spans the length and breadth of the country. It is called Cinema Unbound, The Creative Worlds of Powell and Pressburger. And joining me to discuss Powell and Pressburger over the next half hour, 45 minutes or so, our three colleagues of such lethal cunning, Ian Freer is here. Hello, Chris. How are you, Ian? I'm good, man. I'm going to go down to the BFI exhibition and try on those red shoes. Really? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I'll look great in those. <laughs> they, won't, they won't cart me out or put me in prison or anything, will they? No, they won't. They won't. Ian, I think it's great that you've come dressed as a nun. I think that's real <laughs> dedication to... <laughs> With the, the red lipstick. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I know where I'm going. I'm going next to Nick DeSemlin, who is also here. Hello, Nick. Hello. Very happy to be part of this powwow. <laughs> powwow. Um, <laughs> pleasure to be here. This is the highbrow stuff. You wouldn't get no. this, this sort of lowbrow humor on an Anton Deck <laughs> retrospective, would you, Ian? We're, we're, we're moments away from who's the best, who's going to win a fight between Powell and Pressburger. <laughs> that is my, oh, that's my third question. My, that's my third on, question. My money's on Emmerich. <laughs> <laughs> Roland no. Emmerich Pressburger would definitely win this one. No, he wouldn't. Michael Powell, he's from Kent. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely haven't. He'll fuck you up, mate. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Speaking of people who'll cut you, it's John Nugent. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I don't do the segues, John. They just present <laughs> themselves to me. So what can I do? Uh, yes, I will cut you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't. I won't. I won't. That's the most middle class threat I've ever heard. <laughs> if it's all right with you, I might <laughs> if you would slash like, just, you up. Just a little nick. Just, yeah. a, just a little nick here and there. Uh, but listen, before you guys talk about Powell and Pressburger, let's hear from two giants of filmmaking who are connected in interesting personal ways to Powell and Pressburger. You have Thelma Schoonmaker, who is, of course, Martin Scorsese's legendary editor and was married to Michael Powell. And then you also have Kevin MacDonald, the Scottish film director, who is Emmerich Pressburger's grandson. Now, John here had the great privilege of talking to them both together in the BFI. Where was it, John? Where were we? The drawing room? The drawing room, yeah. The drawing room. Yeah. It was John Nugent in the BFI drawing room with the microphone. <laughs> That's the most middle class thing in the history of the world, isn't it? John Nugent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was happy to lean into it. It was like, what a treat. It was amazing. Yeah. Like, honestly, we, we only waitrose spoke... broke out at one point. <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> we, we swapped tips on organic. Uh... I like to picnic lunch. Yeah. <laughs> the first five minutes of this interview are all about kale, not Pauline kale, just kale. <laughs> It's really weird. Uh, anyway, they were great, weren't they? No, I was, it was, I was in the room as well. It was it was really wonderful. I mean, yeah, they like we only spoke for I don't know twenty twenty five minutes, but I, that, yeah. I could have spoken to them for hours and hours. And and before we even were recording, they were just you know they've obviously they're both sort of custodians of the legacy of Powell and Pressburger. So they were they've they've spent a lot of time together, and they yeah they they could speak for hours and hours on this subject. It the was, legacy, but not the legacy, um, which is my fourth question. If you had to build a Lego set from any of Alan Pressburger's movies. Oh, All right, so who'd win in the fight? Yeah. And what Lego set? Uh, a Lancaster bomber from uh, A Matter of Life and Death with a little, a little David Niven and a little Kim Hunter. And just and a whole building control tower and all that kind of thing. So I'd do Matter of Life and Death. 
<laughs> no, I wouldn't. I'm changing my mind. I'm going to do Black Narcissus <laughs> and Nunnery. <laughs> I'd do the Cathedral from Canterbury Tale, and okay. then the Glue Man would come and just fuck it all up. They don't get this shit on the Sight and Sound yeah. podcast. Yeah. Tell you that, you know, Sight and Sound. Yeah. Some white Legos, Are they black and white Legos? Uh, probably. You can have any color you want in. Oh, okay. Sorry. There is no, there are no boundaries to to Lego. Okay, it's all John, good. Uh, John, who would you who would you go for? Uh, I don't what know. Maybe uh, I know where I'm going because I watched that recently. You could have some like I don't know a, a an sc- Angus cow. <laughs> yeah. What about the <laughs> what about the staircase from the staircase from Matter Life and Death would be a good one actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. that would take ages. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> because in theory, it's infinite, right? So I mean, <laughs> oh god, infinite pieces, infinite time, infinite terror, like Event Horizon, a film I think that Powell and Pressburger would have loved. Anyway, here's Thelma Schoonmaker and Kevin McDonald. Do please enjoy. Uh, we, we're thrilled and honoured to have uh, Thelma Schoonmaker and Kevin McDonald's on the Empire Podcast. How are you both? Great. Good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she has a cold, though. <laughs> She's not great. <laughs> um, but, but I guess the reason we're both we're all talking today is uh, because of Paul and Pressburger. Because of course, the BFI are doing a fantastic um, retrospective of their work, Cinema Unbound. Uh, which starts today, I believe, with the matter of life. That's and death. right. Yeah, tonight. Um, which are you, are you introducing that, Kevin? Thelma and I are introducing. You're it. both I'm introducing. I'm hoping it. Thelma's. She knows more than I do, and she's going to have more to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. Um, but uh, it it was Michael's Powell's favorite film. Yes. And Emmerich Pressburger's favorite film was Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, uh, which is okay. my favorite film. So. <laughs> which is going to be showing um, in a few weeks. Yeah. 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 But um, I think the reason that Michael Powell loved the film so much is that he could become a magician mm. and really do anything, create heaven and earth, stop time, uh, shoot in black and white and color, and and do all kinds of wonderful magical things throughout the film. But he wanted to make it actually also very true medically. So he studied a lot of texts about uh, the damage that people's, uh, you know, incurred during warfare. Yeah. And uh, his brother-in-law was also a, a surgeon who was working with wounded men. So he came up with this way of dealing with it medically, which he preferred to the original version of the script, which was more ghostly. But <laughs> that reality is uh, is part of what makes it work so much, I think. Yeah. I, I, I Funnily enough, I was just in Hungary a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, where they were showing a few Paul Pressburger films, and they showed this one, and um, there is the 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 I um, I mentioned that I had heard somewhere that it was based on a on a Hungarian book or inspired by an, a Hungarian book called A Journey Round My Skull. Oh wow! <laughs> which was written by a famous Hungarian author called I'm going to mispronounce this horribly Frigyes Karinthi. Okay, <laughs> and. Um, this book, he was, a, he was a, apparently a very famous literary figure in Hungary in the 20s and 30s. And he had, sometime in the late 30s, he started having hallucinations. And um, anyway, I didn't know much about it. But then I mentioned this in the introduction of the film. Somebody came up to me after and said, oh, that's a very famous book here. And started to tell me more about it. And it is sort of a novelized version of his medical treatment. Uh, he starts, this author started having these hallucinations. He goes to a doctor. He starts to find the medical... Uh, rationale behind his hallucination. So I think that's where the sort of very first idea must have come from. Yes, and, and actually the whole film is kind of a hallucination if you think about mm. it. <laughs> and yeah. uh, the the one of the things that people should watch for is that 
the optical effects in this movie are amazing. And for example, the first shot, this is the universe. Big, isn't, Big, isn't it? it? It's, yes. it's an amazing yeah. optical. I really want to find out how the hell they did that without digital. Yeah. I, I cannot imagine how they did that. But uh, It's better that, than it would be digital because it looks more real. That, you can't, that's right. Yeah. It does. It does. And, um, you know, when the one thing that's slightly odd about it is that the earth is all moss colored. Co covered yes. and colored. That's because it's made in Britain where everything is nice and green. <laughs> but when Arthur Clarke wrote 2001, first saw the first photo taken from a satellite of the Earth, he was astounded at the rich blue because there's so much water. Yeah. But anyway, the, the reason the visual effects are so good is that Papa Day, as he was called, was the visual effects expert. And he had studied under George Melies. Wow. And um, his his stuff in Thief of Baghdad and all kinds of movies um, is extraordinary. And uh, George Lucas was so impressed by what he saw that he came to England and brought back uh, some of the people who actually made these effects. And they worked on Star Wars. Wow. Um, and uh, for quite a while, actually. So it's really interesting that we've gone now with the restorations, which are done digitally, we now have gone from Melies to Papa Day yeah. to Powell and Pressburger to George Lucas. Yeah. And now with these restorations, we're back to Powell and Pressburger again. And George Lucas is funding some of them. Yes, of course, with the Film Foundation. Yes, yes. Through, yeah. through Scorsese's Film Foundation, yeah. which has restored 500 films around the world. Wow. It's, it is an incredible cinematic legacy, isn't it? I mean, A Matter of Life and Death, I think, is my, it's probably my favorite film of all is time. I've, I'm completely obsessed with it. It's oh, so, so beautiful. It is extraordinary that it's so talking about the special effects, that, that obviously this famous staircase shot. Yeah. The number of films I see where they've kind of paid homage or stolen from yes. that idea. And I was recently watching Saul, the, 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 oh, the, the, yes. the, the Disney film with too. my kids. And it's, it's got the staircase. Really? It's, got all yeah. sort, it's got all sorts of little homages to the film. You should watch it. It's, it's actually a pretty good film. It's got it's kind of film. like a hole in the, you know, the yes. heaven that you it's, look down the, on earth. Kind exactly. Of thing. You look yeah. down on earth is exactly like that section, yeah. but it's very, done very knowingly. And it's really, it's lovely actually. Well, I think Rita Gerwig said that a matter of life and death was a big influence on her on, because on Barbie, of the yes. imagination. Yeah. And, on Barbie. Barbie, my God. There you go. <laughs> and so, so, so what's happening now is that Barbie fans know about that movie. Yes. And maybe they're watching it. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? Do your friends know about Paul and Pressburger? Some of them do, yeah. I mean, uh, probably most of them because I've been bleating onto them for years trying to get them to watch all of them. So, uh, Are they coming across at all? I think so, yeah. I think a few people are coming to see The Red Shoes with me. So, yeah, it's. I think it's... It's. It, it, do you feel like a lot of young people are more interested in I That's what films? I've been told and feel, yes. Yeah. And, and, uh, I think also directors like Wes Anderson, who's spoken quite a lot about yes. his love. Yeah. And you can see the kind of influence of some power prosper elements in his film in the design and that kind of thing. Yes. And I feel like I feel like, yeah, there's that we've come full circle from the days when because I was looking actually before I came here today at some of the reviews for A Matter of Life and Death. I don't know if you've no. looked at them recently, but they they're 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 kind of amazing because they're extremely mixed. In fact, I would say mixed <laughs> negative. Um, in the parlance of the film business, they, they're sort of like, there's a lot of them that say, this is, a, you know, they had this great idea. Why did they make such a vulgar film? Why is it not more realistic? 
British, a real British film is a realistic film, one mm. of them says. Mm. And so it's, it, it's, I mean, there are people who say, you know, this is their best film yet. It's a, it's a technical masterpiece, people say, but there's a sort of, um, yeah, d d misunderstanding about yeah, think about well, what the film actually, is. Actually, in the documentary we're making, we mentioned that that small back room was more realistic, so mm. people liked that, um, mm. or the critics did. Mm. But with these reviews you're reading, are they from? They were from the 40s? Variety, Screen Daily, or whatever, whatever the whatever the sort but of. They, are they recent? Are there more? Oh no, 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 no. They're, these they're are from the 40s these are the these or? are the forties ones. Really? Mm. These are the forties, and then there's somebody says this because we forget today that the Royal Command film performance was a big, this was the first film which ever had that. And obviously today that's a kind of, it's nothing really. Um, well, I don't want to say it's nothing, but you know, it's, an, it's not what it was. But then it was just after the war. So it was a celebration of peace. It's like, a, you know, eight months after the end of the war or mm -hmm. something. It's on the big, one of the few big celebrity get togethers there had been. The King and Queen came, their car, apparently their car was almost overturned by yes. the crowd. And, wow. um, and, and, and there was, 50,000 people outside the cinema. Um, huge excitement. 20 or 30 guineas a ticket. That must be like, that's like a thousand pounds or <laughs> yes. something. Or 500 really? pounds in today's. I mean, it's a lot of money. Oh, because but anyway, it was a charity. A, it was a charity. Charity thing, yeah. Then there were thing, people in the press saying, oh, this movie, why have they chosen this film? It's not a deserving British film. Oh, wow. So it's, really? it's, 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 I mean, it's really amazing. It's one of the things that's most incredible, isn't it, about Palm Press, where how the perception of the yes. films critically yes. has shifted so radically. Yes. Well, I, do, I don't think they were ever... They were commercially successful, except for A Canterbury Tale, but they were never praised by the press, yes. Mm. And then when the Kitchen Sink School came in, then people said, oh, let's get rid of them. They're colonial, they're old-fashioned, they're... And uh, how wrong they were. <laughs> yeah. Is it, it's true, isn't it? The critical community has never, uh, it took, took them a very long time to like appreciate the importance of these films. I mean, you know, it, it was only Michael Powell who made um, Peeping Tom, but that was quite a, quite a turning point in their, in their reputation, I suppose, wasn't it? Really, they were just thrown out, like the yeah. baby with the bathwater, you know, it was yeah. really horrendous. And, but it's interesting, some of the films made after the war are not holding up as well. Mm. These films are sustaining which is extraordinary. That's why young people are reacting to them today. I mean, it's quite amazing because they're about humanity and they're about the whole world. Michael Powell said we shouldn't be making films for the UK. We should make films for the world. Yeah. yeah. And in the days of silent films, you could send a film to Japan. They would take out the American or the English titles, put in Japanese ones. It was the same film. And you could send a film anywhere to Peru and people could see it. And when sound came in, then that meant translation, subtitles, mm. and everything stopped. It didn't become so worldwide. But they, mm. in their minds, were making films for the world. Yeah. That's why you sometimes hear German or French. It's never subtitled. Because they want you to get the flavor of it. And they also, Michael said, you should always be ahead of your audience. Don't ever talk down to them. Don't explain Make sure you're ahead of them because they're ahead of you. So that was great advice to Scorsese and me. Yeah. Don't explain and stay ahead of your audience. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess it worked, right? Because, I mean, these films have endured for so long. And That's people right. are, you know, this BFI season packed screens every, every night. Kind That's of thing. right. So I, I, it, it does have something to do with that overall nature of the films they made the humanity mm. in them i think the humanity is the thing that i would pinpoint as well because i think it's this 
the, the, the most obvious example of that is the way that German characters are treated in the films. Yes. You know, yeah. they're making these, they're great films during the war and shortly after the war when the general, you know, public perception and understandably of the Germans was that they were, you know, unspeakable, evil, horrendous, you know, yes. murderers. Mm. And yet consistently they have the complexity of, yes, there are bad German characters, but there are also decent German characters. And there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a real determination to see the difference between Nazis and Germans. Yes. And I think that, you know, means that they don't just play as propaganda films. They play as films about human beings in particular no, historical situations. It, it's, it's so true. And it was Emmerich's friendship and when he, with many Germans when he was working yeah. there that made him understand that you can't just criminalize, you know, all these people. And that's why, and then, of course, Anton yes. was a huge, mm. I mean, blessing for them. Such a great actor, Austrian-German, and... He gave so much, and uh, it's it's absolutely critical that they were able to do this in the middle of the Blitz. Yes, a friendship between a German and, a, and yeah. an Englishman. I was, yeah, and so many of their their other collaborators were German as well, or, or Eastern European. One with Alan Gray, the composer of *A Matter of Life mm -hmm. and Death*. Mm -hmm. I can't pronounce his original name. It's something. No, Alfred Junger. Alfred Junger. Uh, Hein Heckroth. Hein Heckroth. Yeah, they're all they're all either German or Eastern European. And that, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and they were the best craftspeople around, and they all right. worked, they all worked collaborated together in this really beautiful United Nations kind of way. And you know, one of the things is that Emmerich Pressburger was considered an enemy alien mm. because he came from. Hitler's Germany. He left later than some others, and he was forced to go to a, a, a the police station once a week. Is that right? I, I think it's sometimes once a day. Once a day. Yeah. And he had a curfew at night, so you'll see it tonight in his choice for a clip, uh, which is the speech that Anton Volbrook makes about what it's like to be a refugee. Hein Heckroth, the great designer of the red shoes and many mm. other things, was considered an enemy alien. His wife was Jewish. That's why he left Germany. He was not Jewish himself. And so he was sent with a bunch of enemy aliens to Australia for two years. And on the way there, they discovered that one of the enemy aliens was a Nazi. So they threw him overboard. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't know that. Blimey. Can you imagine these great artists being considered enemy aliens? You think it was once a day? I think he had to go once a day, certainly at the at the beginning of the war, I think maybe later on. And he couldn't leave London without special written permission and all of this sort of stuff. So you're being treated as a suspicious person. Yes. He was very lucky, though, actually, that he didn't get sent to Australia or Canada yes. or the Isle of Man. These people got sent to. So he, you know, he managed to get an exception in a way yes. to, be, to be able to carry maybe on working. Corda, probably probably through Alexander Corder, who was such good friends with, with Churchill, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that, that was lucky. But I mean, it's insane for them to be yeah. treated this way. and. So, but all the way through the war, and I think that exp that explains so much about the kind of when you understand that that's the situation that these films are being made under, the intensity of them, and the sort of the the passion of them, and the fact that they they really are trying to change your mind. They're trying to change the way that you see the world through mm, these films. Mm. Yeah, open your mind. Open yeah. your mind. Yes. I'm I'm curious because we should explain for listeners who don't know that obviously Thelma, you were married to the, Michael Powell and and Kevin Emmerich was your your granddad. Yeah. Um. What what were they like as people? Uh. <laughs> what, like what are your what are your memories of them? Well, obviously I only knew Emmerich when he was already pretty old. Yeah. He died when I was twenty one, 
and I used to, he lived in Suffolk in a tiny little thatched house called Shoemaker's Cottage, Great. which was a subject of some jokes between Michael when Michael met Thelma. Mm. Her name sounds a little bit like Shoemaker. <laughs> um, um, that was a subject of some some jokes between. But he lived in this tiny little house. Michael lived on the other side of London, or equivalent distance from London the other way, in the Cotswolds, and also in a tiny little cottage. And they both were kind of these forgotten figures in the in the 1970s when I got to know um, uh, uh, Emmerich and later a little bit Michael. And um, they were, you know, both still passionate about f film, wanting to write, wanting to direct, wanting, you know, um, but nobody would listen to them. And it was only re in the in the mid seventies there was the first retrospective here mm. in, at the at the BFI, which I think Kevin Goff Yates organized. Yeah, and, and Ian that Christie. Was, yeah. Yes, and Ian Christie. And that was the beginning of people uh, recognizing them. But also, it was it was thanks to Martin Scorsese and Francis Coppola a little bit later, and these figures who recognize these great American, you know, the new generation in the seventies American cinema recognized the genius that. You know, Michael and Emmerich were rediscovered, and so within his lifetime, and within my memory, I, I, you know, I remember Emmerich going to Cannes to have a, have a have a retrospective there, and various New York to the Museum of Modern Art, and the joy I think for both of them in living long enough to see your work recognized. Oh, it mm. wasn't a waste of time; it hasn't been forgotten. Actually, people love this, and so you know, Emmerich really had a he had. I think he had in some ways a, a, a kind of great last few mm. years. He was a, quite a lonely person, and he he. Um, you know, a lot of his family died in the Holocaust, and so there was a, there was a lot of sadness, I think, around that for him. Yeah. But he was quite secretive and didn't didn't really discuss that too much. Yeah. What could you talk about how he fed you? Oh, <laughs> Thelma's referring to the fact that every time I used to go and see him, my brother and I used to go as sort of young, you know, nine, ten, eleven years old. We'd take the train from Scotland, where I lived, uh, out to Ipswich, where he would pick it up, pick us up in his Carmen Ghia, take us to his tiny cottage, and he would have spent you know, three days cooking this Hungarian feast that would basically last all weekend <laughs> with like, you know, pork chops as, you know, as thick as your <laughs> arm, um, chestnut puree with cream in huge piles, boiled tongue, other disgusting <laughs> things. Wow. That I, that I would really but, and then he'd, he'd give us Pilsner Urkel, his favorite beer from the, from the Czech Republic, which he used to actually have to, that was before Pilsner Urkel was, you know, commonly important in the UK. He would get it imported specially from Czech Republic. I don't know how you did that during the Cold yeah. War, but he did it. And, um, we, you know, even as sort of 11, 12-year-olds, we'd have a glass of beer with our lunch and just be knocked out for the rest <laughs> of the time. But I remember I remember that he, he you know, there the was very sweet side to him and he loved animals and the older he got he'd grown up in the countryside he'd grown up with farm animals and mm. he would feed the birds feed the fish and even i remember towards the end i went to the house and there were these little bottle caps all around the house filled with water everywhere and i said what why have you got bottle caps filled with water he said oh so that the spiders have something to drink Aww. he said <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's lovely, lovely. <laughs> and one does one of the final shots we have in because we don't have enough coverage of Emmerich no, in the documentary we're making, is him feeding the fish. Ah, uh, yes. He, yes. Lo he just loved it. He loved all those animals, yeah. But my stepson, uh, Michael Powell's son, Columbo Powell, uh, when I make chocolate mousse, he says, you know, I say, well, how is it? And he says, well, it's good, but it's not like Emmerich's. <laughs> and I keep asking Andrew, his older brother, for the recipe so I can finally make Emmerich's. Well, I remember famously when he used to come and stay with us sometimes for Christmas, he would send in advance his order of food that he wanted, and it would be 
you know, four dozen eggs, <laughs> <laughs> mostly to make chocolate mousse. Yeah. So basically that's the secret is yeah. a ton of eggs, a ton of cream. <laughs> so even when he came to your house in Scotland, he cooked there. He'd cook, yeah. He loved to cook. I guess that's the connection he still had with Hungary, was, was through well, the cuisine. Um, don't don't you think it was also that he was starving when he first went to Germany? Yes, that's and so true. Michael said he was never without a salami in his <laughs> salami and and what would it be whiskey? No, <laughs> no salami and probably Vodka? some but palinka, which is the oh. which is the, the 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 kind of spirit that they drink made out of apricot apricot spirit apricot brandy. Yeah, so he he spent two or three years in Germany living as a tramp, living on the streets before wow. he got his first writing published in newspapers. So. He really knew what hunger was. He knew yes. what hardship was. And he was mm. determined not to have that happen again. Yeah. Michael yeah. Powell was also a wonderful cook, a fantastic cook. Yeah. And uh, I wonder why they were both. That's really interesting. They're both fascinated by food. Michael, presumably because of his his, his young adulthood in France, he, well, they fell in love with food. Maybe, he? yeah. Um, but anyway, Michael was, I think the thing about the two of them, as Kevin has already said, is that they didn't become bitter and I don't know many filmmakers who would not have become bitter mm. with what they went through, particularly Michael with Peeping Tom. Uh, but Michael just kept on dreaming of projects. He wrote almost 100 projects or dreamed up 100 projects after the collapse of the careers and uh, just kept writing every day. Um, and then when I was with him, he was writing his autobiography and I was helping him edit it and get it published but he was—he uh, had a great love of life. Uh, every little thing in the day meant something to him. The light on the chestnut trees outside, mm. or uh, he just—he just, he just ch cherished every second of every day. And I've never been around someone like that. Yeah, that was wonderful to live with. I can't tell you. Oh, that's so lovely. I mean, I honestly—I could hear you speak about these two for hours it's <laughs> been such a pleasure i think that's all the time we have but um okay, well, and thank, Kevin, you. thank you so thank much you for your time. Much. thank you very much that was really fun okay that was selma schoonmaker and kevin mcdonald uh john who was your favorite <laughs> which one did you like best i'm not gonna answer that <laughs> damn it i thought i could get him Ian, obviously you're much older than everyone else here. Uh, yeah, so I, I imagine you were exposed to PMP, not postage and packaging, but Pal and Pressburger at a, at a very early age when you were just a, a wee nipper. Yeah, so I discovered, like most people, I discovered Pal and Pressburger through Martin Scorsese. Uh, this is in the early 80s. Also at that time, Michael Powell was uh, collaborating with Francis Coppola on One From A Heart. He was an advisor at American Zoetrope. So he was in the kind of the orbit of my heroes. So that, that's how I come to know him. Uh, I think the first film of his I saw was Peeping Tom. So not a Pal and Pressburger film. Pressburger wasn't involved in that. And everything you read was about the influence of Powell on Scorsese. So the Reds in Mean Streets Bar are nicked directly from Pal and Pressburger. So that was kind of my route into him. All right. Uh, John? What about you? Um, I can remember exactly when where I was when I when I first came. I think I was vaguely aware of Pal and Pressburger, but the first time I saw one of their films, I was 18 years old and I was studying film studies at university and I did a, like a module on British film. And the 
the lecturer was explaining how, you know, there's this sort of myth that British film is stuffy and old-fashioned and kitchen sink dramas, or mm. it's like cheap rom-coms that get sold to America very easily. Uh, and then they showed us some matter of life and death. And it was really like, you know, scales falling from my eyes. I was just like bowled away that a film this sort of ambitious and visually daring and romantic and exciting and, you know, conceptual could be made in the British film industry. And in the 1940s as well, while there was a war on and it was just like mind blowing to me. And uh, that's still my favorite of their films. I think it's probably my favorite film. Like of, of all time. time, you've yeah. written an empire and masterpiece about that. I have, yeah, I, I'm obsessed with it. So, yeah, that's that's where it, the the love affair began for me. I would say, amazing. I think it might have been through Empire um, that I first read about them. It took me a shameful amount of time to actually see one of their films in full, but I remember seeing clips. I think with the Scorsese documentary and other things, and. Um, yeah, just the colours and the energy. But I, the first couple I saw were the Red Shoes and Black Narcissus, and I was really bowled over. And uh, it took me quite a while to get to the life and death of Colonel Blimp, which is now my favourite. And that film, every time I see it, I get something different out of really? it. Really? Why is that one? I just find it fascinating. I, I love uh, what they do with Deborah Carr playing multiple characters. I love that Roger Livesey's performance in it. I love the colour, just the strangeness of it. It doesn't hue to any kind of formula. It doesn't feel like any other film. And it's so kind of strange and unique that, yeah, I just think it's endlessly rewatchable. There's also that, that, that theory that the, um, the pair of them are kind of counterparts of Powell and Pressburger. You can get the sense of that friendship. Yeah, it's a great that. it's a great movie about friendship and yeah. especially that one of the characters is German and the other is British and they made it during the war and yeah. it's such a warm kind of you know interesting dynamic between the two of them. I think John John's point is interesting though about how they were perceived uh within British film in the especially before Scorsese got involved their reputation was really low. I think for a couple of reasons, Peeping Tom was reviled by the British critics. Yeah, and that was Powell on his own, wasn't it? That wasn't yeah, just Powell on his yeah. own. Yeah, and also I think there was a sense that after those young sort of working class, young angry men films, there was a sense that they were perceived as creaky films, mm. old fashioned. Yeah, so they, they really had fallen out of favour, and it for for a large part it did take Scorsese and his ilk to to um mm. to build them up again. There's a lovely story about George Romero, yes. who, um, who loved the Tales of Hoffman. And he used to take uh, the Tales of Hoffman out of a, a film library every week. And one week he went there and it wasn't there. And Scorsese had it. Oh, That's cool, isn't it? How great is that? He should have got yeah. the box set. Um, <laughs> he told me that story. Uh, I was lucky enough to hear that story That's from amazing. Romero himself. And yeah. basically he wanted to rent the Tales of Hoffman. And every time he went to rent it, he couldn't rent it because some other kid had it. <laughs> And eventually he was like, well, who is this kid who is renting out the fucking Tales of Hoffman? <laughs> and uh, he asked the people, and GDPR didn't exist back then, so they just went, oh, it's this kid from from Brooklyn or Queens or something. Uh name's Martin Scorsese, so he tracked him down and they... They, they had a big fight. They had a big fight. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Romero has zombies on his side, <laughs> but Scorsese has Joe Pesci, so it was, a, it was a draw in the end. But that's interesting, Ian, about the, the creaky thing, because looking at them now, they don't feel... They feel timeless to me. Mm. Like, they don't feel dated, yeah. and I think there's something so... Interesting, the, the choices they make over and over again are so bold that I think they've really, that's why they've endured. It doesn't feel like there's a they're formulaic at all. Yeah. I mean, they, they, I mean, they, they were made, you know, in a, in a very specific time. You know, a lot of them are, they're, they're sort of um, 
you know, big uh, creative spurt was just sort of the 1940s and 50s. And a lot of them were made partly, I, I guess, with the cooperation of like the British government. I, th- I think there was, you know, elements of propaganda. I know Matter of Life and Death was made partly to improve Anglo-American relations. And I'm, I know where I'm going was made to, to they, they wanted to encourage less materialism and that sort of thing. And were they promoting Anglo-Scottish relations. Anglo-Scottish <laughs> relations, yeah. But, it, but you know, they, they sort of move past those that sort of basic propaganda. It becomes much more, uh, I don't know, the, the themes become a bit deeper in their hands somehow. Like, yeah. Um, I think right from the start, yeah, 49th Parallel was kind of a propaganda film, or it was designed to be one, and one of our aircraft is missing. Love that title. Yeah. No relation to one of our dinosaurs is missing. Um, but they did really interesting things, and 49th Parallel, um, I only saw quite recently, but I love it. You know, it's a war story from the point of view of the Nazis. Such, mm-hmm. a, such a big swing, and, and it's a brilliant film. Has this BFI retrospective, has it made you... I don't know, not, not clock back into them, because I know you're a big fan, and always have been, but... You know, have have you been specifically seeking out stuff that you haven't seen? And there's stuff on the big screen now, I guess, that people won't have seen for for a while during this retrospective. Obviously, there's there's the classics, the Red Shoes, and Matter of Life and Death. But there must be smaller films. I imagine not a lot of people have seen things like I Know Where I'm Going or Ill Met by Moonlight. That one I had seen. I hadn't seen a Canterbury Tale before. Okay. Um, I watched that a couple of weeks ago, and um, and that's a, a strange film. It's uh, yeah. So it's an updating of mm, of, of the Chaucer, Chaucer. Uh, into the Second World War. Mm. And it's sort of partly a mystery about, yeah, it's kind of these three characters, who I guess, are the pilgrims and follows them. And there's also a mystery around the bloke who's pouring glue onto women's heads <laughs> for some reason called the glue man. And that's quite a big part of the film. Mm. And it's very strange, but it's a really beautiful ending when you kind of see what happens to all the characters. And um, I think that was pretty unpopular um, when it came out, as I recall. Like people didn't really warm to it. Um, like Alien Autopsy, in fairness. <laughs> it's taken a long time for people to warm to the charms of that particular movie. Yeah, but it's a really interesting film, I think. It's, um, it's peculiar. Yeah. I, there's one film called Gone to Earth, which I, I have yet to see, but I think it's getting like a, a new Blu-ray restoration release or something with this season. And that is a really interesting little sort of fo- kind of footnote on their career because it was... I think it was re-edited by David Selznick, the, yeah. the American producer. It's their first sort of foray into Hollywood filmmaking. Right. And um, it went belly up. It's really interesting. Jennifer Jones is in it. It's kind of this oh, yeah. mis- mystical kind of her relationship, the affinity with the land. It's kind of um, mm. a strange little thing. Yeah, it's was, was, she, was she like married to David Selznick or, or something? Yeah, am am I remembering that right? Yeah. But yeah, it's it's all filmed in like the Shropshire countryside, right? Which is you know very it's it's got a sort of English folk. Um, yeah, but visually it's gorgeous. Yeah, the colours are so rich. Gorgeous. Yeah, I need to watch that one. They were an interesting partnership as well, weren't they? So I I think you could say that they were they were broken down into the traditional filmmaking roles. Powell was the director and Pressburger was the producer, but they were produ- they were they were presented as. Pal and Pressburger films, they had this filmmaking team around them, didn't they, of regular contributors and collaborators that they called the Archers, no relation to the Radio 4 farming soap opera, or is it? I don't know. Maybe it is. But that was an unusual way to present themselves creatively, wasn't it? That it was this this partnership, it was this cabal. Yeah. A a little bit pre-Cone Brothers, I guess. Pressburger wrote, Pressburger wrote, and Pal directed, but they are... Pressburger came up with most of the ideas, I think. I yeah. think that's right. That, you know, yeah. Michael Powell, if you haven't read Michael Powell's um, book, A Life in Movies, I think it's called, yeah. Uh, and then there's a sequel to it. 
million dollar film I think it's called but it's an amazing book which goes up to uh, Black Narcissus and it's really really great yeah and there's also a sense that everybody talks about Powell and Pressburger but as Chris says there is this huge team of the best craftsmen mm. uh, and craftswomen in the, in, in the industry at the time and um, so just, just shouting out them feels a bit wrong it's like obviously the cinematographers Jack Cardiff and yep. uh, production designers Hein Hengroff mm. so there's a lot mm. of people behind the magic yeah and they work with the same actors over and again roger libsey yeah. and deborah carr obviously yeah um so they have their little and, kind of yeah. ensemble yeah rubbishy company mm. and i think the the um having that collaboration of the two of them i think lends itself really well to their films you know emmerich pressburger was like a hungarian jew who you know escaped the nazis and he has that perspective that you, i think you, you feel in all of these films especially in something like Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, where there's this sort of very humane, mm. right at the height of the war, there's this like mm. very humanistic like approach to to things where you could be very bitter and angry about yeah. the state of the world, and instead you 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 know approach it with love and with, with, with sort of yeah. I also think that that Peeping Tom wouldn't have happened with Emmerich Pressburger. Yeah. Uh, so I just think he, he doesn't have that sensibility. It would have been a much different film if Emmerich Pressburger had been involved. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think Pressburger was maybe slightly more romantic and um, more optimistic than Powell. Yeah, I don't definitely. know. Yeah, but the, but yeah, they 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 sort of counterbalanced each other's but sensibilities. It, but there is that really interesting thing of them making what seem like very British films, but kind of one of them is a real outsider, yeah. or both in a way are kind of outsiders. And so, you know, they got in trouble with the British government and Churchill when Colonel Blimp came out because it wasn't patriotic enough. Um, and um, yeah, just showing the friendship between a German. And a, a British guy at that point where the war was still going on was really kind of radical. Yeah, there's something about Pressburger being an immigrant and I think trying very hard to integrate and to to become British. You know, you see that in A Matter of Life and Death, which is almost like, you know, it's, it's like like Britishness or Englishness is put on trial kind of thing. Um yeah, that's that's almost like Pressburger like mm. like coming to terms with his own identity. Yeah, I think the the, the first five minutes of that film are as good as any first five minutes of any film. Yeah. It's so beautiful. So uh, David Niven is a pilot coming to land his film. He can't land. He's, he knows he's going to die. He talks to an American radio comms woman and they just have this lovely exchange for five minutes. It will break your heart. It's terrific. It's so great. It's Yeah, it's like it's it's like flirting at the end of his life, isn't it? And yeah. he, he says, I think there's a line where he says something like, your life and, yeah. and, and I'm leaving it. You know, yeah. it's like, uh, it's so bittersweet. It's beautiful. And also the opening line of that film, this is the universe, big, isn't it? Which yeah, is just... It, it begins in the universe. It's like, a, uh, it's a wonderful life. It, yeah, it, it yeah. It begins in the heavens, doesn't it? it yeah. It up there, yeah. <laughs> and such a great idea to switch earth to being color mm, yeah. heaven to being black and white, which is the opposite of what we'd seen, mm, mm. you know, any kind of depictions of heaven. Yeah. So, so uh, reverse wizard of Oz. That's cool. <laughs> so Pressburger did the, uh, did the writing. Yeah. Um, Powell did the pacing <laughs> and everything else. Yeah. And I know you had the good fortune in your, in your career to talk to Jack Cardiff. I did. Yeah. Years ago. Oh, uh, wow. About 20, 20 odd years ago now. Yeah, and just a, a fantastic filmmaker, a, a great man. And uh, if you think of something like Black Narcissus, which is entirely studio bound, mm. and the visuals of that film are astonishing. Mm. Uh, these films also have—they also feel handcrafted in a way. The matte paintings and mm. yeah, so the, oh, yeah. the matte paintings are, are photographs painted mm -hmm. with hand painted, so they have mm. that unique feel about them. 
There's um there's a great photo of Jack Cardiff on the set of Red Shoes with one of the cameras, and the camera is absolutely huge. You kind of forget like how giant like the equipment was as well, yeah. and it's such a nimble kind of so much energy, and, and the camera work is so kind of spry and quick in that film. That, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And he he introduced that kind of uh, changing the sh- the film speeds down for the ballet sequences that Scorsese absolutely rips off for Racing Bulls. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely admits it. Yeah. He, he, he absolutely ripped that from them. Mm. Um, there's that lovely moment in A Matter of Life and Death where you get a kind of a, a transition and it's just, it's, it's Powell breathing on the lens of the camera and it all fogs up. Oh, brilliant. And wow. comes out again. It's, it's, it's lovely stuff. It's when the so camera's great. spinning in the red shoes. Yeah. I, love, I love that Jack Cardiff uh, shot um, Black Narcissus in red shoes and then did Rambo 2. Um, <laughs> during, during which Stallone went over to him and told him his lighting was wrong at one point. They, <laughs> according to Jack Cardiff in his book, they almost got in a fist fight in the middle of the jungle. But um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Who would your money be on? Unless he's Jack Cardiff. <laughs> I'm, I'm going for Sly in that one. <laughs> Not if he's got Thelma for backup. <laughs> um, there's a great um there's a great documentary about Jack Cardiff. I think it's called Just Cameraman, Cameraman yeah. which is which yeah that really like turned me on to his his work and that it really shows I, he he was really influenced by like you know traditional art. He would like refer to paintings and you really get a sense of that in mm-hmm. their films the, the, especially the ones that he was working on. There's this sort of painterly quality and the the colors are just so yeah. like vibrant and yeah, especially in Black Narcissus, there's something so strange and powerful about that film. You know, it's a psychodrama, but the, the visually—I always just think of the lipstick shot and the shot with the bell, mm. and just the, the use of color in that film is absolutely astonishing. So, how much of that came from Cardiff, and how much of that came from from Michael Powell? I mean, in terms of the visual side of things, the the the, the you know, if Pressburger <coughs> is doing the writing, yeah. What what is what is Powell bringing well, to this partnership? Powell is bringing that because if you look at the if you look at the other films. That, that Cardiff didn't shoot, that sensibility is still there. So you kind of think that that, that visual sense and the sense of the fantastical and, the, and the, the kind of the indelible imagery does come from, from Powell. I would, I'm not to, not to dismiss what Jack Cardiff did, but of course, yeah. that, that seems to be uh, proved throughout the whole of the work. All right, well, let's, let's start wrapping this bad boy up uh, now. And uh, let's talk about favourite moments. I mean, John, you've already said your favorite movies, Matter of Life and Death. Uh, Nick, your favorite movie is Black Narcissus. I can never choose. I, I kind of blimp. I've got a real soft spot for, but yeah. Black Narcissus and Red Shoes, I keep going back to over and over. So one of the, depending on the given day, one of those three. All right. Ian, favorite movie? Alien Autopsy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't. How can you choose? You can't. Yeah, choose. Right. you got to yeah. choose. You got to choose. <laughs> I'll choose a moment. Imagine we were doing a ranking. If I was doing a ranking, I would choose Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Just for the friendship at the heart of it, mm. which I think is beautiful. Mm. beautiful. Oh, that's, that's two for one. But either way, Life and Death is in the title of whatever you've gone for. So it. technically a comic book movie, by the way, Life and Death of Colonel Blimps. So, really? You know, yeah. It was based on a comic book. That sound you can hear is Martin Scorsese disowning it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right it's not cinema. Um, <laughs> He's furious now. But yeah, yeah. Colonel, Colonel Blimp, the way it starts is this kind of like pumped up co- comedy yeah. and it ends as something really melancholy and it's got such depth to it and it starts with it's such a ridiculous character in the middle of it but yeah. it becomes beautiful and really you know is there a, be- a bit of cinema in any of their films in the 17 minutes of the red shoes that is the, the, the ballet that's, yeah I mean that's, that's as good as it gets isn't that's, it? That, if you're talking about best moments that is probably up there I mean and watching that on a big screen as mm-hmm. well is is like something akin to a religious experience mm-hmm. it's quite yeah. amazing I would argue that 17 minutes is too long to be a moment. So my, <laughs> my moment, I'm going to pick my greatest moment 
as I'm going to pick two uh, from uh, Black Narcissus. One where uh, Kathleen Byron opens the door and Kathleen Byron standing there with her stunning red lipstick. Mm. Then later on in the film, she's got wild hair and she's walking toward the camera and the camera tracks back. And that's just amazing filmmaking. That's astonishing. Mm. Mm. Uh, the, we always talk about the visuals, but they are great with actors. Mm-hmm. They are so mm. good. There's a, a lot of the, the actors' best performances are in Powell and Pressburger mm. films. David Niven's never been as good yeah. as in Matter of Life and Death. And, you know, they're, they're, they're brilliant with actors. Nick, what's your favorite moment for me? It's probably, well, it's either the ending of The Red Shoes um, that's just so, just knocks me out every time I see it. It's such a crazy way to end the film. And it's just, you know, a movie about the power of art. And, you know, it's a tragedy, but you kind of watch it and forget it's just how powerful and strong that moment is. Or the the end of Black... I think they're really great endings. The Black Narcissus ending, again, with, like, as you said, Sister Ruth, uh, Catherine Byron just is brilliant. And the moment where she flips out is is incredible. Yeah. John, have you done a moment? Well, I think it's already been covered, really. I think the... Um... Yeah, the opening of A Matter of Life and Death, yeah. the first five minutes, I think, I don't think anything tops that for me. Um, yeah. And they're very influential, aren't they? I'm pretty sure, I can recall, I'm not sure if it was on record, but I'm pretty sure we talked about Soul, for example, with yes. Thelma and Kevin. Yeah. Say we, I was in the room pressing record. John was the one who was doing the Soul, talking. the Pixar film. Yeah, the yeah. Pixar film. Because right. you know, obviously it has also yeah. a stairway to heaven. Black Swan, would mm-hmm. that exist without the yes. red shoes? Yeah. Um, I think there's even some camera stuff in that that's kind of referencing red shoes directly. Um, but there's tons and yeah. the spirit of them, I think, as well. Just yeah. yeah, I think you can look at Barbie and I think it's very difficult to imagine Barbie without those kind of fantastical sets and that sense of the, uh, the artifice being very apparent. Mm. That, I, I think that comes from, and also next year, Yorgos Lantimos's Poor mm. Things oh, yeah. is very, mm. very ripped from, from Pal and Pressburger. The, when she goes on a world a world trip and there's a all the countries there are kind of very fake and, and artificial and that that feels very Pal and Pressburger to me they, they are like filmmakers filmmakers in a way aren't yeah, they like, yeah. like Greta Gerwig has specifically cited I think Red Shoes as being a big Barbie influence and um, yeah you know Scorsese is, is the yeah, world's biggest yeah. Pal and Pressburger fan and you, you see constantly references in his films I mean Thelma Schoemaker was saying she did a talk at the BFI and she was saying how Tales of Hoffman, uh, which was written to the music. I mean, it was filmed specifically to match the musical cues of of this opera. Uh, and Scorsese just borrowed that technique constantly. Like the um, the Layla scene in Goodfellas, the sequence there was written for that song. It was like mm. planned out for those musical beats, and that's direct influence from from Tales of Hoffman. Um, I think it's interesting is that that. Gerwig and Lantimos are two generations on from Scorsese. Yeah. So mm. it's still, the, the influence mm. is still percolating down, isn't mm. it? Mm. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, the, the BFI season that is happening at the moment seems to be completely sold out. And the screening, I went to see, I know where I'm going last week, and it was like, every generation was there. I think young people seem to be, mm. yeah, I, I'm not sure I can quite call myself a young person anymore, but you know, younger... Young adjacent. Young adjacent, recently young. Uh, like I think it, they, they are, like you say, Nick, they're timeless films. And I think they, they keep getting rediscovered. Mm. And that's, that's really lovely to see. My favourite um, bit in that is the, the train at the beginning. Yes. There's a model train that goes through Scotland. <laughs> and the, the, the landscape is a very kind of, it's kind of flags, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so great. I'm sure there's a terrible rom-com, modern rom-com with the same plot as I know where I'm going. Talking of influences set in Scotland. Really? I think so. I can't remember who's in it. Um, 
that's uh, but yeah, I know I'm seeing the red shoes and um, Colonel Blimp on the big screen for the first time, both of those. So I can't wait to see that. And with a sold out audience, how great is that? Brilliant, amazing. Well, there we go. A good note on which to end. I, I think uh, that is it for this very special podcast dedicated to the work of Powell and Pressburg with special guests, Thelma Schoonmaker and Kevin McDonald. And it is Schoonmaker. We checked with her. We checked with her. Um, or rather, she corrected us. <laughs> well, yeah. One of the two. Oh uh, but it is now, because for years I've said Schoon. But yeah. Yeah, the boat's the Schoon, so you would say, yeah, so it makes sense. It makes sense. Maka. Schoonmaker. She's a maker. Maker. She says schoonmaker. Yeah. See, yeah. She's got. Yeah. Sorry, Thelma. <laughs> and now we just have to send this podcast to her, and she's going to edit it in her spare time. <laughs> It'll be two yeah. two seconds yeah. long. <laughs> <laughs> she'll, she'll win an Academy Award for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only way any of us are getting near an Academy Award. All right. Okay. All that remains now is for me to say goodbye to my three colleagues of such lethal cunning, Ian Freer. I'm off to steal the red shoes. <laughs> please don't. Please don't, Ian. Please don't get arrested. Uh, John Nugent. Uh, goodbye. I, I know where I'm going and it's out of this podcast studio. <laughs> yeah. There are no more I know where I'm going jokes. It's obvious and it's first base. Uh, Nick, Nick the Semillion, goodbye. I was going to make an I know where I'm going joke, <laughs> but I'm just going to go and have lunch and turn myself into a blimp. <laughs> it's like the word blimp. It's a great word. Bill Shankly once said, football is not just a matter of life and death. It's much more important than that. Yes. And I think he was also thinking about this podcast. In many, many ways. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's goodbye from me as well. I know where I'm going, and it's to direct you guys towards the BFI website so you can find out more information about Cinema Unbound, the creative worlds of Powell and Pressburger. Uh, it's bfi.org.uk, and you can book tickets for whatever screenings and talks that there are still seats available for. There ain't many. Let's put it that way. Uh, but thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye bye.